God, indeed, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You sit enthroned above the circle of the earth. Lord, we don't want to ever lose our wonder, our sense of awe at how almighty you are. You are Yahweh, Elohim. You are God and there is no other. And we thank you today that you're a God who's revealed yourself and you've put it in a book. Lord, now as we give our attention to your word, uh, by your Holy Spirit, would you help us to interpret it correctly and then to apply it to our lives that we might live out your word in our world today. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. So on Monday, Beth and I were traveling north on 74, and then just starting to merge onto westbound 80, when the car in front of us unexpectedly swerved to avoid another car. But because of wet pavement, that car right in front of us started spinning and sliding. Beth immediately started praying out loud for the individual who was driving. I was holding on tightly to the steering wheel, checking my rearview mirror, and moving over to the shoulder as I braked slowly and and gently, because I didn't want to get in the middle of all that either. As this car continued to spin, it headed toward the right shoulder, and I thought that this wasn't going to be pretty, when all of a sudden, I can't even explain why or how it happened, the car shot over all across all three lanes. Now it's in the left shoulder, and it's perpendicular to the shoulder, and I'm thinking, oh no, that car's going to go into the eastbound lanes of 80, when all of a sudden, the car stopped. The guardrail halted its momentum. And I could see the young woman was really shaken up. Beth immediately called 911 while I got out of the car. I was wearing this black Edgewood cap, so I got out of the car, and here's me on the side of the road. I'm like trying to get traffic to slow down because this car, the front end of her car now, was in the far left lane, and I was afraid the other cars wouldn't see that. Now, I'm thankful that the traffic did slow down. When the officer arrived, he waved us on, and we were thankful that she didn't appear to be injured, at least physically. Well, two things kept that situation from being much worse. First, I believe Beth's earnest prayers kept the car from crashing. And second, the guardrails did their job by keeping the driver from certain disaster. Like guardrails, God's commands keep us safe and secure. One pastor said it like this, we're not saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. However, we are kept safe by them. The law reveals the righteousness of God, but it cannot produce righteousness in our hearts. The commandments don't give us life, but they certainly guide our life and they help us stay on the road. Now, all of that is so important 
and became even more important because this month, a brand new study was released by George Barna. Here's what he discovered. 94% of Americans do not hold a biblical world view. Yet ponder that, which means only 6% of Americans hold to a biblical worldview. And sadly, 88% of Americans ascribe to some form of syncretism, which according to Barna is a disparate, irreconcilable collection of beliefs and behaviors that define people's lives. Syncretism is a cut-and-paste approach to making sense of life. And Americans kind of pick and choose almost like you're at a buffet. Remember buffets? I don't know if they're coming back. But they're like, I'll take a little of this. Oh, that looks good. That's going to make me happy. Oh, I'm not, I don't want any of that there. That, that's going to mess with the way I live. And so that's kind of how most Americans have put their worldview together. Now, it's easy to think when you hear a national survey to say something like this. Yeah, our country is really spinning out of control, isn't it? But we might be thinking, and we might not say it out loud, like, well, our community is certainly doing better. Uh, not so much. Earlier this month, an area high school class was given the oatmeal trigger test. Perhaps you saw it on the news. It was designed to help students explore their own personal backfire effect to 36 claims of fact statements. Now, I'm all for students being challenged to figure out what they believe, but the statements they were asked to rank reveal a clearly, a decidedly anti-biblical bias. Let me just list five of them. Teaching sex education at age-appropriate levels starting in kindergarten is beneficial. Next one, virginity is a myth. And the practice of determining worth to virgins is psychologically damaging. Next, homosexuality is not a choice, it's a biological construct. Fourth, the Bible does not actually condemn homosexuality. People are misinterpreting and misquoting Scripture to force a narrative. Now listen to the fifth one. It's on the reverse side of this. I don't have it up on the screen. To decrease abortion... We need to have comprehensive sex education, not abstinence or faith-based sex ed. Fellow followers of Christ, my guess is that got your attention. Parents, grandparents, I submit that we must internalize the Ten Commandments if we're going to teach them to the next generation because these commands are foundational to developing disciples who hold to a biblical world view. By the way, in order to help anchor their worldview to God's Word, our mainspring ministry, that's our college and 20-somethings, our kicking off a brand new series on worldview. They're going to be looking at topics like politics and justice and racial issues and sexual identity, all from a biblical perspective. Most of you probably don't know that our Mainspring ministry met here Friday night. They were here until 2 in the morning, participating in something called Secret Church, led by David Platt, 
designed to help young people, our next generation, develop a heart for unreached people groups and to understand what's going on in the church around the world and particularly for persecuted believers. This past week, on Wednesday, I stopped by the McDonald's here in Rock Island. I saw Shane Davis there. He was having coffee with a bunch of friends. And Shane said he really appreciated the first message in our Written in Stone series. He engaged online. I asked him if he needed a bookmark. And I remembered that I had a bunch of bookmarks in my backpack. And so I went and picked up um, some bookmarks, and I gave one to Shane and to all of his buddies. I had some extra ones, and so I encouraged them to give some of these bookmarks to their friends when one guy said, thanks, I know a big sinner I can give one to. (laughs) And then he laughed and said, I'm one of those big sinners. To which I replied, me too. You too. You see, the Ten Commandments help us see that we're sinners. And they help us see our need for the Savior. I hope you've been working at memorizing the Ten Commandments. We put these on bookmarks, if you weren't here last weekend, right in front of you, right in front of the offering envelopes are a number of bookmarks. Take one out, take one out now, take a couple, we have plenty. And what we've done with the Ten Commandments, we've shortened them to two words or three words to help us remember. Let's go over them now. Let's read them together. It's also up on the screen. One God no idols, revere his name, remember to rest, honor parents. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, and no coveting. So we're serious about asking you to memorize these. We can all do this. Let me point out a couple things that may help them stick in your mind. The first two are very much related. If you have one God, well, then there can be no idols. One God, no idols. That's commandment number two. Commandment three and four all both start with the letter R. Helps our minds remember, revere his name, and remember to rest. The fifth commandment, which is kind of the hinge commandment, now we move from four commandments focused on God to our relationships with others is honor parents. And then we move into five that start with the word no. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, and no coveting. Last week, we made some observations about the Ten Commandments. We made ten of them. Here are four more observations. Eight of the commands are negative. No other gods and no idols. Don't take God's name in vain. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, no coveting. Two are positive. Remember to rest and honor your parents. Now, Hebrew has two forms of negative command. One is used for specific, immediate situations, and the other for general prohibitions. Here's the sense. Don't ever. Secondly, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated or reinforced in the New Testament. The only one not reinforced is keeping the Sabbath. Number, four, number three, the commands are written as emphatic imperatives in the language of exclusive covenant loyalty. 
final observation, Deuteronomy 10.5, tells us Moses eventually put the commandments in the Ark of the Covenant to be kept in the most holy part of the tabernacle. Now, in order to honor God's word, I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able, and we're going to read the first commandment, but we're going to back up and pick up verses 1 and 2. Commandment number 1 is found in verse 3 of Exodus chapter 20. Let's read this text together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. All right, you can have a seat. Thanks for reading together. So we could say it like this. If God is not Lord of all, he's not your Lord at all. I see five truths. Number one, God proclaims. The name for God here is Elohim, which refers to God as creator. God is judge. God as king. Even God as savior. This name is actually in the plural form, and many commentators see that as a plural of majesty. Well, many believe this is an early reference to the Trinity, as Genesis 1.26 says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So we see in verse 1 how God reveals himself. He uses words. And God spoke all these words, saying. The word spoke means to say or promise. All these words come from God, which means they have authority. Having been in Egypt for 400 years, God's people needed God to speak. They had been wowed beyond measure, Exodus chapter 19. But now they needed words to know what God is like and what he wanted from them, or maybe better yet, for them. The second thing we see is that God is powerful. Verse 2, God says, I am the Lord. This is the name Yahweh. This is the name revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. God wants Moses to go and talk to the people. Moses doesn't want to go. And then Moses is like, okay, if I go, who should I tell them is sending me? And God says, I am who I am. G. Campbell Morgan pointed out this name is a combination of three Hebrew words, which mean he that will be, he that is, and he that was. This name for God refers to God as the self-existent one. He has no beginning, and he will have no end. Well, let's unpack this a bit more. Whenever you see the word Lord, In all capital letters, in your translation, it's the name Yahweh. This name for God is used over 6,800 times in the Old Testament, three times more than Elohim. Its name is also translated as Jehovah. This name was considered so sacred that when scribes would write this name, they would take a bath beforehand and destroy the pen afterward. This name was so revered, it was only said out loud once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
and then only by the high priest in the Holy of Holies. And as a way to set this name apart from any other name, when it was written, the scribes used four consonants and they left out the vowels so people would not inadvertently take it in vain. Listen, if God is not Lord of all, he's not your Lord at all. Thirdly, God is personal. Verse 2 continues, your God. The word your is the second person singular pronoun. God is powerful. He's also personal. God is majestic, and yet we can say he's mine. God is immense, and he's imminent. God is never-ending, and he is near. He's revealed himself so that we can know him relationally. That's summed up in Psalm 50, verse 7. I am God, your God. Albert Moeller calls this first-person intimacy and first-person authority. Now, we see this personal relationship throughout the commandments. Would you observe verse 5? You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God am a jealous God. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Verse 10, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord, your God, is giving you. Number four, God's people are privileged. So we're told who God is, and now we're reminded what he has done. Look at the last part of verse 2. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We learned last weekend that love precedes limits. Grace comes before the guardrails. God rescued his people before giving them requirements. Hosea 13.4, but I am the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. Friends, ultimately it's not about what you do. It's about who he is. It's not about me performing. It's, about all, it's all about who God is and what he has done. This is so important to keep in mind because when we focus on our own redemption, on God's amazing grace, how can we not obey him? God made me. God paid for me. He purchased me. He bought me. He brought me out of slavery to sin. He owns me, and as a result, he certainly has the right to lay down some regulations, doesn't he? The Apostle Paul picked up on this theme in 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Let's just stop there. That's a mind blow. Your body is a temple. If you're a born-again believer, the Holy Spirit lives within you. He continues, whom you've received from God. And then he says this, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, assuming most of us would say God is first in our lives, let me ask a question. Who's number two to you? Who's number two in your life? 
See, whatever you declared as number two is the biggest threat to who is number one. Fifthly, God's primary precept is prohibitive. Look at verse 3. So now we're in the commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Right at the beginning, God made clear what is forbidden. He did the same thing with Adam and Eve, Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This first command is spoken in the language of a sovereign to a servant. Here's an obvious observation. The Ten Commandments begin with God. They don't begin with us. They start vertically. They don't start horizontally. Friends, we need to be at peace with God. We need to be in a right relationship with God before our relationships with others will ever be right. Would you note how personal this command is by looking at the words at the very beginning and the end? So you, and it ends with me, the you is us, the me is God. God spoke to more than a million people at the base of the mountain, not as a group of people, but as individual men and women and boys and girls. This right here is an intensely personal command from an immensely personal God. The order of these words in Hebrew is quite strong. There shall not be to you any other gods before me. It's an unconditional prohibition. Do not ever or let there not be to thee The first word not only prohibits polytheism and idolatry, it also commands reverence and love and worship of God alone. Settle this. The Almighty demands absolute allegiance, and He does not allow rivals. As Riken says, God has always been a monotheist. The word before in this verse can mean above or over or against or in opposition to the face of God. One Hebrew scholar renders it like this, There shall absolutely not be other gods besides or before my face or person. Well, that phrase, before me, can be understood in two ways. First, before my face. In this sense, it means to have no other gods in front of me or in my presence. Literally, it forbids us bringing idols into the place where God is worshipped. But secondly, the phrase could mean in my face. This has the idea of putting something in someone's face. When we don't give God our total and exclusive allegiance, it's like insulting him to his face. God's saying this, in effect, you dare not bring even the acknowledgement of any other so-called God into my face. Friends, it's not that you can have other gods as long as God is your favorite. No other gods, small g, are allowed at all. 
There is to be no competition for our allegiance. Jesus quoted the essence of this command. He's tempted by the devil. Matthew 4, verse 10. He says to the devil, be gone, Satan. And here's his authority. He has authority as the Son of God, and he goes to the Word of God. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I found Kevin DeYoung's insight helpful. The God of the Bible is not simply interested in being recognized as a strong and mighty deity. That would not have been a controversial claim in the ancient world. Lots of people had lots of impressive gods and goddesses. What is controversial, what was controversial, and what set the Israelites apart from the other nations was that their God demanded to be worshipped alone as the only God to the exclusion of all others. Jen Wilkin writes, the first word is more than a prohibition against worshiping lesser gods. It's an invitation into reality. Why should Israel worship no other gods before God? Because there are no other gods. Now listen to some verses from the book of Isaiah which speak of how we are to worship God alone because there's no one else like him. I initially had eight passages from Isaiah, and I shortened it to four. We'll still get the point. 44, verse 8, Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Chapter 45, beginning verse 5, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord Yahweh, and there is no other. Verse 21, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Friends, God doesn't want to be the chief thing in your life. He wants to be everything. So if God is not Lord of all, he's not your Lord at all. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and what? Okay, some of you said money. Some of you said mammon. Money is a translation of the word mammon. Mammon was a god. He's saying you cannot serve God, capital G, and a small g, God, money. Warren Wiersbe offers this insight. For the Jews to worship another god would be to to declare war on Jehovah and incur his wrath. Now, we teach our children to share, but there's one thing God will not share. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. 
I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. He will not share the stage with anyone else. And one of the phrases that came out of the Reformation really hits this well. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. You know, for four centuries, God's people were surrounded by polytheism. There are a lot of gods, small g, in Egypt. And it rubbed off on them. They prayed to the rain god when the ground was dry. When their wives were barren, they cried out to the fertility goddesses. But then they saw God's amazing outpouring of ten plagues. By the way, each of those plagues dealt with one of the gods of Egypt. And then they experienced this pyrotechnic explosion on Mount Sinai. That's Exodus chapter 19. So what one commandment? Did God want them to hear first that he is God and there is no other? You shall have no other gods before me. Now, it's easy for us to say, well, yeah, that's Old Testament stuff. Yeah, those people really messed up. But John Calvin refers to the human heart as an idol factory. You know, there have always been many gods, small g, vying for our attention and allegiance. I thought it'd be helpful to take some gods from the pantheon of the past and see how we could see them fleshed out today. Or to say it like this, here are some gods of the past that are still bowed down to today. How about the god of power? In the Old Testament, that was Baal. He represented power, but he was put in place by Elijah, right, at the top of Mount Carmel. How about the god of pleasure? That would be the goddess Ashtaroth, worshipped through all kinds of sexual immorality. You know, pleasure's like a drug. It often requires more to get the same effect. Well, this god is still bowed down to today through pornography and sex outside of biblical marriage. How about the God of prosperity? Well, we already referenced that from Matthew 6, words of Jesus. That's the Syrian deity called Mammon, all about materialism and money. What about the God of pragmatism? That'd be the God Molech who called worshipers to sacrifice their children by throwing them in the fire. You know, when you count the babies sacrificed to the idol of abortion in America, and then you add in all those who are abused and neglected, including a 12-year-old who was shot in Davenport, it's obvious Molech is alive and well today. Oh, one more. How about the god of play? The Greek god Hermes represented athletic prowess and sport. Maybe you know the name of a goddess, Nike. That's the goddess of victory. Well, many in our culture today are worshiping at the shrine of sports. In fact, that's why some families, even with COVID restrictions decreasing, are not gathering to worship on a regular basis. 
Someone said it like this, we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. Joy Davidman, who is the wife of C.S. Lewis, was spot on when she wrote these words. The modern idols are idols of sex, the state, science, and society. Now, in addition to those idols, our culture worships the false gods of relativism and pluralism, where absolutes are absolutely out. Here's the deal. Lean in. Get this truth. You and I were made to worship. And if you don't worship God alone, you will find something or someone to bow down to. According to Isaiah 46, 1 and 2, all gods, small g, other than the true God, will ultimately disappoint us. They'll eventually crush us. Some of you know that truth. Here's why. They can't carry us. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are burdens on weary beasts. They stoop and they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So let's go New Testament, 1 Corinthians 8, 4. We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Where did the Apostle Paul get that last phrase? Right from the first commandment. However, it's not a harmless thing to give your life to a false god. Uh, listen to 1 Corinthians 10.20. It's quite sobering. Behind every idol is an evil spirit. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Get this, false gods are designed to take everything you have, to leave you in bondage, to crush you, and to ultimately devastate you. But I have some great news I can't wait to share with you. God will gut your gods if you allow him to do so. Yeah, amen to that. Let me share one of my favorite illustrations in all of Scripture. I was going to summarize it, but God does a better job than I can. So 1 Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines, they're the arch enemies of Israel, captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So Ashdod is on the, court, on the, on the coast. It's one of the Philistine cities. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So the ark of God next to this false god, Dagon. He was pretty gross looking. The top part of him was a human, bottom part was a fish. It's like the fish god. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. I love that. So what did the people do? They took Dagon and put him back in his place. What I'm thinking, if this is a real God, why would he need help getting back up? So they prop him back up. 
Oh, it doesn't end here. They rose early next morning. Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Listen, when you and I try to prop something up in our life, we're trying to keep that relationship that we know is outside of biblical standards. We're trying to prop it up. We're trying to keep it going. We're trying to keep that habit, that addiction, that, that thing you're doing that nobody else knows about. You're trying to keep it up because you think that's what life is all about. When you do that out of love, God knocks it down. And he shows how ineffective and lifeless that really is. Listen, if you want to be free from false gods, then bring the true God into your life. You say, I can't get rid of those gods, small g, on my own. Well, you can't. They're too powerful. And so allow God to smash your idols, your gods. And when you do, Dagon will be destroyed. Baal will be busted. Ashtaroth will be annihilated. Mammon will be mangled. Molech will be no more. Zeus and Hermes will be gone. And finally, probably the biggest altar in our lives, the altar to self will be smashed to smithereens. But sadly... Instead of repenting, the people simply removed the Ark of the Covenant. They found it more convenient to get rid of God than their dismantled deity. You go, how could they do that? Uh, Some of you might be doing the same thing. Instead of allowing God to get rid of the God small g in your life, Maybe you've been stiff-arming God. Maybe you've been trying to shut down God. You don't want to hear God's word. You look for ways to shut him down and tune him out. Listen, let him into the temple of your heart, and he will destroy Dagon and whatever else lurks in there. Jen Wilkin is spot on. The children of Yahweh today are not so different from the children of Yahweh then. Like Israel, we affirm there are no other gods, verbally and intellectually, but not practically. Practically, we live as polytheists. So identifying false gods can be tricky. So here are a few questions that maybe will get the ball rolling for us. Do I love or treasure anything or anyone more than God? Do I prioritize anything or anyone before God? Does anything bring me more pleasure than the things of God? Do I place my identity in anything over my status as a child of God? Do I look to anything or anyone to meet my needs instead of God? Do I seek fulfillment or satisfaction from anything outside of God? And do I seek comfort outside of God? Remember this, God demands your absolute affection. Thomas Watson said it like this, to love anything more than God is to make it a God. He demands your absolute affection and he demands your exclusive allegiance. Incidentally, the breaking of this first commandment happened all the time in the history of Israel and Judah. And because of their reliance upon false gods, Israel 
was exiled to Assyria and dispersed. That's where you hear of the ten lost tribes of Israel, gone. Judah, years later, was deported to Babylon. It's so easy to spin out of control, isn't it? And end up in a ditch. And when you get out of one ditch, do you ever wonder why you fall into another one? Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Check out this video. This is a young shepherd boy from Argentina, and he's pulling out a sheep that's fallen into a ditch. So the sheep's out, he's free, and he goes, ah, boom. (laughs) Now watch, the young shepherd boy is headed to pull him out of the ditch again. Any of you relate to that? God gets you out of a ditch, and you fall right back in. And God keeps rescuing us. He's not left us alone. Isaiah 53, 6 ends this way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Listen, to comply with this first commandment is going to require a definite choice and a difficult choice to exclude every other affection. Joshua 24, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, Joshua says, and my house, we will serve the Lord. Later, after a false god named Baal is shown to be powerless, Elijah lays down a similar challenge. 1 Kings 18, 21, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? He lays it out. If the Lord is God, follow him. You think Baal's God? Follow him. So how can we be delivered from the worship of other gods and ultimately from the worship of ourselves? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Trust fully in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and follow him for the rest of your life as his disciple. And once you are born again, you'll be released from bondage to other affections. And I wonder if you're ready to believe, to repent, and receive Jesus Christ right now. You close your eyes and allow me to pray. You could pray along with me quietly if this represents where you're at. Jesus, thank you for fully keeping the commands because I haven't and I can't and many times I don't even want to. Thank you for getting me out of the ditch so many times. I confess that I'm a self-centered sinner and I bow before so many things in my life and in our world. I repent of my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for bridging the divide between my unholy behavior and a holy God. I believe that you paid the price for my sins by dying on the cross, and you showed your power then by rising from the dead on the third day. I now receive you as my Savior, my mediator, my Lord, my rescuer. Jesus, come into my life and lead me to follow you faithfully, fully, exclusively from now on. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.